Welcome to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine, Dona e this is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 8.6, Exodus Reditus. In this episode, we'll continue our tour of what Christians call the Old Testament as part of our world-building series meant to help explain Catholic Christianity and the stories and cultures that left their mark on it before we start on papal history proper. Feel free to skip ahead if you already know the difference between a chalice and a cilis. Now, as I've said before, and will say again, just because we're talking Bible doesn't mean the content of this episode is appropriate for all ages. Also, this is in no way a careful, comprehensive, or reverent summary. Rather, this tour is meant to be a way to help get everyone on the same page before we start with papal history. As you've heard before, I'll be skipping plenty, and I promise you I will fail to reflect in any meaningful way on the significance these psalms and stories have outside the podcast's narrowly defined lens of Catholic Christianity. Nothing against anyone, I'd just like to get talking about the popes sometime. With all that out of the way... The Prophet Daniel In some ways, it's a real short trip from Ezekiel to Daniel. Best guess ages have Daniel born one year later than Ezekiel, but he lived 30 years longer, and we're also moving geographically, because in his youth, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. That's a long enough name that I'd normally shorten it with a nickname, but frankly, it's a delightful name to say. Nebuchadnezzar. 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 Now, the four did end up close to King Nebuchadnezzar, though, recruited as part of a talent search for quote-unquote wise men in his realm that puts them all in danger, because before you know it, Nebuchadnezzar is bothered by a dream, and he wants his wise men to interpret it. To avoid getting scammed, Nebuchadnezzar insists his wise men prove themselves by telling him what his dream was before they interpret it. He then goes a step further, threatening to execute all his wise men, unless he gets an answer. If all of this sounds a bit like the story of Joseph and Pharaoh's dream from Genesis, good catch. There are plenty of parallels. If all this sounds exactly like the story of Joseph and Pharaoh's dream from Genesis, that might be because I messed up and conflated the two originally. Pharaoh explained his dream and then asked for the interpretation. It was Nebuchadnezzar who added the wrinkle about having the contents of the dream told to him to prove mystic credentials. I have since re-recorded that episode to avoid misleading future listeners, but I'm putting this note here in order to acknowledge my error. There will be more errors to come, I'm sure, so be sure to write in to popularhistory at gmail.com, that's popular with an E, if you see one. Meanwhile, Daniel had no room for error to save himself and his friends, not to mention all the other randos falling into the wise men category in Babylon, 
from the threatened execution. So Daniel prayed, and God answered his prayer, giving him insight into Pharaoh's dream and its interpretation. Quote, Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your Majesty, you are the King of Kings. The God of Heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. End quote. Now, Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream leaves some room for commentators to speculate on which kingdoms are meant apart from Babylon. For most of Christianity, and so too for our purposes, they are Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon as the head, an easy call as mentioned, then the shoulders and the chest are the Medes slash the Persians, who are conflated elsewhere in Daniel, and whose king, Cyrus the Great, king of both and several other places as the founder of the first Persian empire, he took over Babylon in 539, right towards the end of Daniel's life. Cyrus, by the way, gets a nod in the book of Isaiah, where he is labeled as a messiah despite not being Jewish. Not the messiah for our Christian lens, but it's an interesting tidbit, especially considering this interpretation would make Cyrus the leader of the quote-unquote lesser kingdom of the silver portion. The third kingdom in the traditional view, the bronze belly and thighs, is one we'll definitely be talking about more over the next few episodes. The Greeks, who storm into the Levant, 
Levant being a general term for the lands around the eastern Mediterranean Sea, especially those that are east of the Mediterranean itself. They storm into the Levant in the form of Alexander the Great, and they begin a process known as Hellenization, Hellenes being how the Greeks referred to themselves after their mythical founder Helen, grandson of Prometheus, the dude who stole fire from the gods by the way of his father Deucalion, and also grandson of Pandora, of Pandora's box fame, through his mother Pyra. Sorry, not sorry for the digression. And yes, I know Prometheus was a titan, but let it be known that this podcast operates under California rules, where dude can refer to anyone and anything without regard for gender, species, etc. In any event, we'll be talking about Greek cultural influences for the remainder of the Bible, and on into the main show. There's a reason the entire New Testament was written in Greek. Now, the fourth kingdom, the legs of iron and clay, is traditionally one we'll be talking about even more in the coming episodes and into the main show. Rome. Now, the fact that in our story, Daniel is talking to Nebuchadnezzar for over 500 years before the Levant is conquered on the Roman Republic's behalf by Pompey the Great is no obstacle to this interpretation, traditional among both Christians and Jews, because of course, Daniel is speaking prophetically about future events to their traditional mindset. Curmudgeonly scholars, on the other hand, who don't tend to cotton to prophetic tellings, have tended to keep much of the traditional identification. There were only so many conquerors ruling the area to choose from, after all. And they solved the Daniel was long dead by the time of Alexander issue with their favorite scholar trick of insisting that the book of Daniel was written long after the life of its putative author. And this time around, they outdo themselves by insisting that Daniel, in fact, never lived, that he was just made up. But even with that skepticism, the date can only be moved so far as the book of Daniel was apparently around by the 2nd century BC, well before Pompey, so modern scholars tend to poo-poo counting Rome as one of the nations, instead splitting up the Medes and the Persians and having Greeks be the feet. But at the risk of sounding redundant, I'll mention that modern scriptural analysis wasn't really a thing for most of the time period we'll be looking at, and I was certainly raised with the idea that the feet were Rome, so that's what we'll be going with for the purposes of this show. As for the rock that knocks the whole thing down, Christ's second coming and the heavenly kingdom we'll look at more when we get to Revelations, which, pardon the contemporary imagery, is usually tabbed open when Christians read Daniel. But I'm going to go ahead and take St. Augustine's comparison of the rock with the Catholic Church one step further and pretend like there's reason to think the rock is the papacy. To be clear, there isn't any meaningful basis for such a comparison at all, but for our purposes, it's fun to pretend like this is anticipating Matthew 16:18 and is therefore a hint at our main topic. Now, as much fun as it is pulling a Daniel and talking about future things, we should get back to our narrative present and cover other famous stories from the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're actually the stars of our next story. Not clear why, but Daniel isn't around for it at all. You see, in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar builds a giant gold idol and demands everybody worship it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or to use their VeggieTales names, Rack, Shack, and Benny, refuse to bow down to an idol because they're observant Jews, and not worshipping idols is a whole big deal in that context. 
Now you can Google up VeggieTales if you like Bible told through animated vegetables. I won't trouble you with it more than I already have since I'm going to be giving it to you too much already. And to think, I once talked about laser focus. Alright, in any case, Rackshack and Benny's refusal is 100% not what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hear, despite him just having proclaimed to Daniel, after the successful dream-telling and interpretation, quote, Surely your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery, end quote. Now, apparently, that pro-Yahweh sentiment didn't stick around, because Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely furious his order to worship another god has been refused, and he orders that a furnace be put on overdrive, and Rack, Shack, and Benny be thrown in. We're talking intense furnace here. Like, the men that threw them in died from the heat. But Rack, Shack, and Benny are unharmed. And they have a shiny new friend. Apparently, an angel who is protecting them. And for Catholics, there's actually a bonus portion of the story, since their Bible includes, putatively, the song of praise to God that these three holy youths sang while they did not burn in the fiery furnace. Now, seeing all this, Nebuchadnezzar lets them out, he promotes them, and he threatens anyone who insults their god with death. But evidently, this still isn't quite enough, because there's another Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen to God then gets miracled story in the next chapter, where Nebuchadnezzar has another dream that needs interpreting. This time around, he's at least aware enough to know that Daniel's the guy he wants to talk to about it. Daniel basically tells King Nebuchadnezzar that he needs to start worshipping Yahweh now if he wants to avoid consequences, and Nebuchadnezzar's response is basically, consequences? I love consequences! Which leaves him going mad for seven years and roaming around like an animal before regaining his sanity and converting to worshipping the Lord. Now, I should note that there is no real historical evidence for this. Certainly, it's reasonable enough to say that if Nebuchadnezzar had gone temporarily insane, but had stayed in power and had eventually recovered, it is quite likely that such an interlude would have been de-emphasized and kept as quiet as possible. And there is indeed a partial tablet that seems to discuss Nebuchadnezzar being confused and indecisive hanging around the British Museum, which, with a fair amount of squinting, could be taken as a hint of madness along these lines, but it really does take a squint, since there is no evidence that Nebuchadnezzar dramatically converted to Judaism and told everyone about it, which is the basic claim of Daniel 4, as it takes the form of a proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar describing and explaining all this to his subjects and saying, yeah, I'm a totally a Jew now. Of course, the real issue here is that I'm rapidly running out of easy opportunities to work the word Nebuchadnezzar in here, as this is our last Nebuchadnezzar story. But I can buy a bit of time by telling you about chiasms. And you better start believing in chiasms. You're in one. Specifically, we're right in the middle of a chiasm now. What is a chiasm? Well, it's a literary device that's particularly popular in the Bible, including this Nebuchadnezzar section of Daniel. In a chiasm, events are paralleled, pivoting around a central point, often a central theme of particular importance. In this instance, that center of the chiasm is the idea of submission of earthly rules to God. Nebuchadnezzar comes to accept God. His counterpart on the other end of the chiasm, Belshazzar, does not. 
and opposites can pair as well as similar occurrences when it comes to chiasms, so that's fair play. Now, the next layer out in our current chiasm pairs the fiery furnace of Daniel 3 with the story of Daniel in the lion's den, which we'll get to shortly. And finally, we chiastically parallel the four kingdoms of the statue replaced by a fifth in the form of a rock from Daniel 3 with the vision of four beasts representing the four world kingdoms replaced by a fifth found in Daniel chapter 7. And we'll get there soon enough, I promise. Now that we know that we're in the heart of Daniel's chiasm with the central theme of earthly power bowing or failing to bow to heavenly power, let's make our way back out. The parallel to Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar, as I mentioned, who, we're told, doesn't learn from the alleged example of his predecessor, as he disrespectfully works gold and silver tablets stolen from Solomon's temple into a banquet. His party is interrupted when a magic hand appears and writes an indecipherable note on the wall, which Daniel is called to interpret. And with that, seeing the writing on the wall becomes shorthand for seeing that the end is near, because knock, 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 that message is from Yahweh, and he's judged you and found you wanting. We're told that Belshazzar is killed and replaced by Darius the Mede that very night, which makes me wonder if we're talking about some sort of ambush or just a really brazenly timed banquet. Oh yeah, the bad guys are coming to kill us any moment now, so pass the dates. Now, since I'm very disciplined, I'm going to resist the temptation to tell you that Darius the Mede is a figure that only exists in the book of Daniel, and there's no historical evidence to suggest a ruler between Belshazzar and Cyrus the Great, because that would be a pointless sidebar. Oh, but we do have a proper Darius the Mede story to tell, which is handily the next story in our chiasm, paralleling Rakshak and Benny in the furnace. Daniel in the lion's den, told in Daniel chapter 6. Surprisingly, King Darius isn't actually the bad guy in this story. In the now-established tradition, Darius sees how capable Daniel is and promotes him to high office. Seriously, this is the fourth time Daniel's been recognized and promoted, including Belshazzar promoting him as a reward for prophesying that God was pissed and he was doomed, a promotion which must have happened fairly quickly, since, again, we're told Belshazzar is overthrown and killed the same night as the banquet, and the subsequent explanation for the magic handwriting. So, busy night, I guess. In any event, with the dust settled and all after all that promoting, we're told Daniel is now the number two man in the whole kingdom. King Darius straight up loves him. His other advisors get jealous, though, and they set a trap. There's a lot of not-at-all subtle foreshadowing about how the edicts of the Medes and Persians cannot be repealed or altered, and then the other advisors get Darius to decree that all prayer must be directed to him, with the fenders being thrown into the lion's den, which was, at that time, apparently a place where lions were kept around for execution purposes. It wasn't the adult nighttime chain it is today. Sorry for the mention. Now, being an observant Jew, Daniel continues to direct his prayers to the God of Israel, and, whoops, he gets tattled on, and because of the whole no repealing or altering thing, Darius, Darius has no choice but to have Daniel thrown into the lion's den. But fortunately for Darius, and Daniel as well, of course, this story parallels the Rakshak and Benny story in that much like they are spared from the fiery furnace, Daniel is spared from the lions. Also, 
in similar way to how the furnace is demonstrated to be lethal by consuming the folks that throw on Rackshack and Benny, well, quote, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. End quote. Daniel, chapter 6, verse 24. Man, those are some hurdy lions, especially since most lions leave humans alone, a fact which I'm going to find occasion to bring up again from time to time to avoid perpetuating anti-lion stereotypes. Of course, these lions were presumably left pretty starved to serve as execution tools. Uh. On that note, I do have a bit of a lighter anecdote, because one of the portions of Daniel that Catholics have is funny in its own way. The story goes that Daniel is hanging out in the lion's den for long enough that he's in need of a bite to eat himself, and so an angel basically tells the minor prophet Habakkuk to make Daniel a sandwich. To which Habakkuk replies, Who? Having no idea who Daniel is. Habakkuk is then whisked over to Daniel, he gives him some food, and then he gets taken back to resume his minor profiting. It's a weird episode, and yeah, it's one of the several times that it's pretty understandable why certain Bible stories didn't gain universal acceptance. But they're so fun. This particular bit comes from such a portion of Daniel called Bell and the Dragon. We'll get into all that after we wrap up the remainder of the generally accepted book of Daniel, along with the rest of the generally accepted Old Testament. We're close now. After finishing these parts of Daniel, there's Esther, which, like Daniel, had some sections often left on the cutting room floor, and then there's Ezra and then Nehemiah. Now, there's still one more bit of archaism to discuss. Frankly, it's one I'd be skipping over if it weren't for one particular detail absolutely goes down in history as a papacy-connected topic. Paralleling Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the composite statue representing four kingdoms is Daniel's apocalyptic vision of four beasts. Just as in the case of the statue's portions, the beasts are understood to each represent a different successor kingdom. I won't trouble you with all the beasts, but the one representing Rome in this telling has teeth of iron and is a little horny. By that, of course, I mean it has ten horns and one of them is a little horn. This little horn, we're told, had human eyes and, quote, a mouth that spoke boastfully, end quote. It's a little weird, but okay. Uh, conveniently, Daniel, too, is wondering what the heck is going on with all this, and he asks for an explanation. So we have that as well, quote, The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. End quote. Now, carrying on from the traditional view that the fourth kingdom represents the Roman Empire, this little horn has been widely interpreted as symbolizing the papacy, which in many ways grew out of that empire and carried on after it had perished. Now, for some reason, Catholics have tended to disagree with that interpretation and are suddenly much keener on the more modern takes on the dating of Daniel, 
and the view that the fourth kingdom is the Greek Seleucid Empire, with the little horn in that context representing King Antiochus IV Epiphanes, an interpretation which, to me, seems to fit better. For instance, who are the subdued three kings when it comes to the papacy? In Antiochus's case, he had been fourth in line for the throne, but he ended up king nevertheless. In the papacy's case, you go ahead and pick three tribes floating around in the debris of late antiquity, and you say, the Pope subdued them. The fact that there's little agreement over which these tribes would be is telling, plus any scholar worth their salt will tell you that the Roman Empire ended in 1453, not 476. I'm exaggerating there, of course. It's certainly not unanimous, and the whole historian, quote, worth their salt, end quote, is classic true Scotsman fallacy. But, well, we'll be coming across the late-stage Roman Empire, often shorthanded as Byzantium, frequently in the main show. Now, I'd love to delve more deeply into the various rumors, prophecies, and conspiracy theories connected to the papacy. And I will. We'll have a series, probably several series, on such things in the main show. It's too good a topic to pass up, and there are plenty of Pope-connected conspiracy theories to go around. From the Vatican secret archives, to the Illuminati, to the Knights Templar. Feel free to email in any requests for these or other possible series for the main show. At popularhistory at gmail.com, that's popular with an E. Alright, onward. The remainder of Daniel is a series of prophetic visions, often with varying interpretations. Now, some sections, like the following, have fairly standard interpretations. Quote, then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. End quote. Daniel, chapter 11, verses 3 through 4. Now, both religious and secular historians tend to agree that this refers to Alexander the Great, given his impressive arc and the fact that his empire was split up among his generals after his death, along with the fact that the previous verse puts the context here as Greece. Now, this interpretation is straightforward and acceptable to both skeptical folks who tend to believe that Daniel was written after the time of Alexander, and also to traditionally-minded folks who tend to believe that Daniel was prophesying about future events. One early observer following this traditional view, a first-century Jewish writer named Josephus, who we'll talk about more as we go, he passes along a story about how, when Alexander came to Jerusalem, he was shown prophecies about himself from Daniel, which is almost certainly a reference to this passage. Of course, there are other interpretations of this and every other passage as well. One ever-popular approach is to read prophecies, especially from Daniel and Revelations, as referring to the future, especially the near future. Daniel 11's discussions of the king of the north and the king of the south, get plenty of airtime with folks looking into current events through a biblical lens, with the common hook these days being the recent reestablishment of Israel as a nation in 1948. And don't get me wrong, Israel being back on the maps after nearly 2,000 years is certainly notable, but between you and me, I'm extremely skeptical that this kind of tea-leaf reading is productive. But since I'm currently writing and producing a podcast, well, it's fair to question my judgment as far as what counts as productive. So if using yarn to connect pinboard portraits of Daniel and Vladimir Putin is your cup of tea, you might as well go for it. There's one last bit we should talk about with Daniel today, something I actually missed on my first go-around as I tried to avoid getting dragged too far into the apocalyptic chapters that close out Daniel. But there's a passage in Daniel 12 that has certain theological implications. 
Quote, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. This is the only mention of a resurrection of the dead in the universally accepted First Testament, which is a new-to-me term I'm trying out to lower the number of aspersions I cast on things old. And from where I sit, it sounds a lot more like the Christian view of heaven and hell than I was expecting. That Christian view isn't the only available interpretation, of course, but it's a ready one. So there it is. Like Daniel, our next story also takes place among the Jewish exiles in Babylon. Or rather, in the successor state of the first Persian Empire, also known as the Achaemenid Empire, after the whole writing on the wall thing from Daniel 5 passed control from the Babylonians to the Persians. The Book of Esther Specifically, Esther takes place in the reign of a King Ahasuerus, who isn't historically attested elsewhere, but is probably based on Xerxes I, who reigned from 486 to 465 BC. Ahasuerus, we're told, has his wife killed when she refuses to strip down for his party guests, and our hero, the titular Esther, is chosen as the new queen after the king looks around and thinks she's hot enough for him. Lucky her, I suppose. Esther's got a secret, though, one that makes this whole story a lot more relevant than it would otherwise be. She's Jewish. And this is a great time for a Jewish woman to suddenly have a direct line with the king, because a Jewish man is about to really annoy his top advisor, Haman. Mordechai, Esther's cousin, refuses to bow to Haman, and in a completely proportional move, Haman bribes King Ahasuerus to secure permission to kill all the Jews in Persia, which at this point in history would basically cover all the Jews, since the whole of the historical land of Israel was under Persian control, with many Jews, like Esther and Mordechai, living as exiles in Babylon. That's modern Iraq, in case I hadn't mentioned that. Haman cast lots, also known as Purim, to determine when a good day for the massacre of the Jews would be. To be clear, think of casting lots like rolling dice, though the lots themselves probably weren't dice, but still, casting lots means tossing some form of marker and seeing how it rolls, leaving it up to chance. To be clear, I mentioned Purim because it's the single most culturally impactful word in the story of Esther, which is traditionally read, twice, on the Jewish feast of Purim. I'm hoping it's not too terribly disrespectful for me to mention that I chuckled and thought of the Rocky Horror Picture Show when I learned that Ashkenazi Jews in particular have a habit of basically booing when Haman's name comes up in the readings. And certainly, Haman's a booable sort of guy. Fortunately for an incredibly huge swath of global cultural heritage, he doesn't get his way. The Jews are not exterminated. And really, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that efforts to exterminate the Jewish culture and the Jewish people themselves have indeed continued in various times, places, and forms throughout history, including several where the papacy was cheering on the oppressors, such as with the Spanish Inquisition, as well as cases where the popes could certainly have been at least more helpful, as was the case with Pius XII in the Second World War. We'll be covering those topics in the main show in time, and it'll be interesting because Pius XII's archives were just recently released earlier this year to historians. So we'll see what we can find and what historians and researchers have dug up in recent days. Not much making headlines, apparently, because I haven't really heard anything about it apart from the archives were opening up. Of course, coronavirus may have put a damper on some of the research. 
In any event, to get back to our story, refreshing myself on the Book of Esther wasn't without some judges-style eyebrow-raising on my part, because in it, the Jews kill 75,000 people. Now, it's likely that this is in self-defense, since we fall back onto the the king's order cannot be taken back issue we saw with Daniel in the lion's den, although it seems like this time around there's some more room for modification, given that the Israelites aren't obliged to be killed in the same way that Daniel was obliged to be thrown into the lion's den. Rather, it's evidently permissible to attack the Israelites, but it's also fine for them to defend themselves. And so, 75,000 dead. Really, methinks the tradition of not allowing the king's order to be modified even by the king will not be missed when it stops being a thing. And yeah, it stops being a thing. Now it's time to transition to a different focus and talk about a new historical period. Of course, all historical periods are made up, but as far as such things go, the quote, second temple period, end quote, is a fairly recognized and useful designation. We've been talking about what's known as the Babylonian captivity for a while now. That's the period from the destruction of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple by Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar in 587, up through 538, uh, when the successor state ruling Persian king Cyrus the Great decides that some of the Jews should be allowed to return to their ancestral homelands. And, as the period name I just dropped might suggest, he's going to allow them to rebuild the temple, with construction on the second temple estimated as running from around 537 to 516. Now, the events of Esther occurred a few generations after the Babylonian captivity proper, but the mood was very much in that captive vein, with the people of Israel coming so dangerously close to annihilation. The second temple was already 40 years old by the conclusion of Esther, but though the exiles were permitted to return to Jerusalem and the surrounding area, all their old homeland was still part of the great Persian Empire, and they were subject to, at times, brutal interference from the kings of the wider world, as we saw with Purim, and as we'll see again, dramatically, under Antiochus IV Epiphanes at the time of the Maccabees in our next episode. But our next two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, originally one scroll, just the scroll of Ezra, are focused more optimistically on the reconstitution and restabilization of Israel after the exile. Now, we kick off in 538 with the previously mentioned decree from the Persian king of kings, Cyrus the Great, announcing that the Jews can return to Israel. This is also the last year of life for our old friend Daniel, for context. Cyrus is mentioned in Daniel, but the decree we see when we kick off Ezra isn't mentioned directly there. By the way, that common title for Persian kings, the King of Kings, or Shah and Shah, is also a name used for Jesus Christ, once in the letter to Timothy, and twice in the book of Revelation. Just interesting tidbit. Now, the group of returning exiles begins construction on the temple, and they celebrate the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, uh, with apologies for my pronunciation, uh, was described in both Exodus and Leviticus, and is still celebrated every fall. Also called the Feast of Tabernacles, that word, uh, tabernacle, not Sukkot, certainly came into its own in Catholic Christianity. Originally, it described the temporary dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant in the desert during the Exodus, which was basically a large canvas tent decked out in precious stones and the like. In Catholicism, the tabernacle, as I believe I've mentioned previously, is the generally gold receptacle for the host. That is, the host being the 
former bread that, according to Catholic teaching, is now truly the body of Jesus Christ, even though it still appears to be bread. Yes, that host is stored in the tabernacle when there are leftovers after Mass. Of course, this little spot here is a great example of me taking a story about a different religion and spinning it into Catholicism, but, well, we'll see a lot of that moving forward. My apologies. Your penance for listening to this episode is to see if there's an opportunity for you to learn more about contemporary Jewish traditions in your area. Don't be, like, weird about it, though, because, well, that'd be weird. And, of course, what is weird and line-crossing when it comes to observing and participating in Jewish customs as an outsider is a fair question. And we actually have a pretty good gauge because the next tidbit from the Book of Ezra is some relative outsiders attempting to horn in on important religious exercises. Apparently, one thing that falls into the weird category is offering to help build the Second Temple when you're one of them Samaritan folk. And when I call them one of them Samaritan folk, I'm definitely intentionally giving you a feel for the way they're presented in the Book of Ezra. And actually, it's more straightforward than that, as the Samaritans are described as, quote, the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, end quote, which, by my count, basically makes them the enemies of all the Jews that are around at this point, since the ten lost tribes have been lost for a few hundred years at this point, leaving only, in essence, those two tribes, keeping in mind that the ten lost tribes vanished under the weight of the Assyrian Empire, like the remainder of the people of Israel nearly did under the Babylonians and the Persians. And the Samaritans have a bit of a different story here, because in their understanding, they are the descendants of those ten lost tribes, and apparently there's some genetic backing to that, potentially. Um, well, in any event, the Samaritan offer of help is rejected, and the spirit of Karen comes upon the Samaritans, and they write to the manager, the king of kings, to complain. This causes the construction to be halted for a time, but it's later resumed after Cyrus's decree is reread, and they decide that, yes, Cyrus told them to rebuild the temple, it's good. Let's get on with the main character, Ezra the priest, also known as Ezra the scribe. He's both. Getting to Ezra actually takes us forward a few generations, as by the time Ezra rocks up absolutely loaded with gold and authority around the year 457, the second temple has actually been complete for well over 50 years. Did I mention that Ezra was absolutely loaded with gold and authority? I did? Oh, well, it bears repeating several times because Ezra was absolutely loaded with golden authority courtesy of Artaxerxes, the Shah and Shah, which is just another way of saying the King of Kings. Again, not to be confused with Jesus. Artaxerxes being a man with plenty of gold and authority to spread around. But all is not well, my friends. Oh no, all is not well. Because first off, Ezra has no Levites, no members of that quasi-priestly class, not to be confused with priests specifically, but I sure am confused. In any event, Ezra writes back to the home office about this, and he gets some Levites shipped over, but it turns out all is still not well. All is still not well indeed. Can you tell I've been listening to David Crowther of the History of England? If you can't, then you'll need a refresher, so pope on over there and give it a listen. I'll wait. But our friend Ezra wouldn't wait, because he's got to address a serious issue. Namely that folks, including even high priests' sons and nephews, were guilty of marrying foreign women, which was a big no-no under the Law of Moses, a.k.a. the Torah, a.k.a. the rules we probably didn't dive into as much as we should have back in episode 2. Say la vie. The solution to this is to divorce the women, which I have opinions about, but for once I'll keep them to myself so we can carry on into Nehemiah. Now, don't worry, 
Ezra appears there too. This book opens with Nehemiah off in exile. He hears about how the walls of Jerusalem have crumbled and the gates have been burned. This makes Nehemiah really sad, because he's a big fan of walls and gates. So he brings it up with Shah and Shah Artaxerxes, that's the same guy from Ezra. And he ends up as the governor of Persian Judea, with the scratch necessary to make his wall dream happen. Now, Nehemiah rounds up a posse and they get to work, rebuilding them walls. And suddenly, clowns with names like Tobiah the Ammonite are taunting them as they go, with classics like, quote, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? End quote. Nehemiah, chapter 4, verse 2. Now, as much fun as I'm having giving all this a pretty lighthearted treatment, and it's hard not to when they're ostensibly direct quotes there, at the end of the day, in this era, walls had primarily a military purpose. So, as the work continues, it's under careful guard, weapons at the ready. Eventually, the walls are complete, and you might think it's Nehemiah's turn to taunt. Now go away, or I shall taunt you a second time. But, honestly, our man is a little too cool for that. But of course, Bible studies are such that there might be some random scene where Nehemiah kills a hobo and wears a scalp or something, but if there is, I missed it. So, I'm going with Nehemiah's generally pretty cool. He knows what he likes, walls, and he does what he likes, builds walls. He does have a bit more depth than that, like when he objects to folks charging fellow Jews interest, a note to self to do an episode on papal attitudes towards usury, or when he puts a stop to the storage unit to buy the Ammonite had set up in the storeroom of the Second Temple. And yep, it looks like this is that same old taunting friend popping back up for a quick cameo. And let's be real. This is the Bible, so even the quickest of cameos means you're historically significant and you get your own Wikipedia page. Ask me how I know about the Wikipedia pages for these folks. Seriously, don't confuse me with an actual historian. Use actual sources. This is, this is for entertainment. Now, once the walls are up, they're rededicated, and Nehemiah has Ezra read, quote, the Law Book of Moses, which is either Deuteronomy or the whole dang Pentateuch, to the people who lap it up and sign on the dotted line, much as they had in the book of Ezra. And that's basically Nehemiah. But, much like how I couldn't let you get away with learning about the Psalms without hearing Psalm 23, or learning about Genesis without a tasteful turtleneck-inspired description of a foreskin, to complete your experience with the book of Nehemiah, you really should listen to the full description of who did what to which section of the wall. Now, I'm not so cruel that I'm going to make you sit through that, but you know what? That's just the sort of material that makes for a great supplemental episode. So tune in next time for an episode 8.6a, literally a detailed account of the gates of Jerusalem and who fixed them in the time of Nehemiah. Or, if that's not your speed, skip ahead to episode 8.7, the Deuterocanon. Thanks as always to our sound technician, Mr. Billy Edwards, to our logo designer, Russ, and all those who I really should name, but don't.